Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. We are, uh, we're going to continue this morning uh, on the series to the uh, seven letters and the churches of Revelation. I'm going to warn you uh, off the bat, uh, the, the church we're looking at today, the church of Thyatira, it's kind of a heavy letter. Uh, but we're not going to skip it. We're going we're gonna to dive in head first. So uh, we've looked at the letter to the church at Ephesus already. It was a church that had great doctrine. They had great works, uh, but they had lost their love for God and one another. We looked the next week at the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was one of two churches that has no correction given to them, only encouragement. And their encouragement was to endure persecution even if it ends in death. Uh, Not that God's going to rescue you at the last moment, but just that you know it'll be worth it to be persecuted for Christ. And then last week, we looked at the letter uh, to the church at Pergamum. Uh, This is a church that was commended for living, as Jesus described it, in a city where Satan has his throne. Uh, This was considered a good thing. Jesus wants us to live in places like this so that we can bring light to places like this. So their issue in Pergamum wasn't the whole church, but with a number of people in the church who were prone to compromise. But again, this week, we're going to move on to the letter uh, of the fourth church, uh, which is the church at Thyatira. Now, Thyatira is the church that we know the least about. Uh, It is uh, in the city that is considered the least important city of all the seven. So it's not the least important church, but it's just considered the least important city. And in fact, there was a first century uh, uh, man, his name is Pliny. He was a Roman lawyer, uh, and we have a lot of his writings. And he referenced Thyatira in one of his writings. uh, And this is what he said. He just said, Thyatira and other unimportant cities. Uh, That's how he described Thyatira in his writings. Uh, The city just was not viewed as being very uh, important. Uh, Could you turn me up just a little bit, Renee? Uh, Yet the, the letter that is written to this unimportant small city is the longest letter that we have of any of the seven letters, uh, and it's probably considered to be the most severely rebuking letter out of all the seven. Uh, Now, I want to show you a picture here. This is basically all that's been recovered in archaeology of Thyatira, uh, is what you can see in this picture. You can see a city surrounding, uh, and we know that There is a lot at our fingertips with Thyatira, but we can't discover it because we would have to bulldoze a city uh, to to get to it because a city has been built on top of the ruins. So uh, that's Thyatira. And just to provide a little more background uh, that's very relevant to the letter that we're going to read today, what we do know about Thyatira is it was a city that was known for their trade guilds, uh, G-U-I-L-D-S. These were like organized groups uh, of various trades Uh, And Thyatira, they had many, many trades that they were known for. They were known for wool and linen and leather and pottery guilds, just to name a few. Uh, And what we have discovered uh, based on inscriptions in this city is Thyatira actually had more of these trade guilds than any town of its size in all of Asia. Uh, And that might sound like a side note, but actually it's, it's a central issue behind the letter. Because the way that these guilds worked is, for instance, if you worked in construction then there would be a Thyatira Construction Guild. It's a group that that you're supposed to belong to. And this guild, uh, almost like a union, it it, uh, controls all of the work, all of the construction work 
flows through this guild. So it was extremely difficult to get work if you were not a part of this guild that they had. And, and there's a late theologian, Will, William Barclay, uh, he said it this way, he said, no merchant or trader could hope to prosper, prosper or make money unless he was a member of his trade guild. They just controlled all the work. The problem with that is to be a part of the guild meant you had to make concessions, uh, especially spiritual concessions, to be a part of the guild. You were expected to worship certain gods. Uh, it might mean that you go to meetings for these guilds that are held in pagan temples where food would be offered to idols, and then it would be expected to be eaten by those who attended the meeting. You'll find this kind of recurring uh, sin that comes up in these letters, which is eating food sacrificed to idols. That's the kind of thing it's talking about. They would make sacrifices to the false gods, and then they would expect people to eat the food that they just sacrificed. Um, now, what we find in this letter is this is kind of the issue at hand. Some in the, in the church are resisting this idolatry that's being put in front of them, uh, but others are saying, hey, uh, a man's got to eat, right? I mean, is there really any harm in eating the food sacrificed to the idol if I don't actually believe in the idol? You know, I can compromise in that way, and, and I can engage because I don't really believe. This is the church that Jesus is writing to. It's a church that faces this temptation to just compromise just a little bit every day. Uh, and it's a church that would be doing much better economically and much better socially if they would just give in and compromise a little bit here and there. So with that background, uh, I want to dive in. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. It says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, you might not expect this phrase, Son of God, to, to have much significance here. Why wouldn't Jesus introduce himself this way? Because that's who he is, right? Uh, but actually, this title, just like in the first three letters, it, it, it is actually a direct connection with the audience that he's writing to. Uh, that phrase, Son of God, it occurs about 40 times in the New Testament. Uh, now, what's interesting is, uh, of the 40 times that it's used in the New Testament, this is the only time it is ever used in the book of Revelation. Not only is this the only time that he uses that title in one of the seven letters, but in the entire book of Revelation, this is the only instance that he refers to himself as Son of God. So why does he use it here in this specific letter? Uh, and the reason for that is because in Thyatira, the residents... Uh, of Thyatira, they, they worshipped various pagan gods, Roman and Greek gods, but one of the most popular gods that they worshipped, and in these guilds they were expected to worship, was a god named Apollo. Apollo was believed to be the son of Zeus, and actually when they worshipped Apollo, this is how they would refer to him, the son of Zeus. And the son of Zeus, and the son of Zeus. And many scholars believe, and I tend to agree, that when, what Jesus is doing here is very intentional. He's kind of opening the letter with this trump card that says, you live in a city that unashamedly worships the son of Zeus, the son of a false god. But these are the words of the true son of God, the son of the one true God, uh, the one who is in his character and in his very nature. He connects with him that, on that level right away, and then he does it again. Uh, so to read that verse again, he says, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
Now, I'm not going to take too long here, but I don't want you to miss just how intentional what Jesus is doing here is because he's continuing to connect with them. Uh, of all of these various trade guilds that Thyatira was known for, there is one that they were known for above all of the others. Uh, and you might be able to guess what it is based on the screen here. Uh, that was their brass smiths. Uh, like blacksmiths, these were people who worked with brass because uh, brass was considered the strongest known metal in the ancient world. Uh, when it was refined by fire, it was considered as one of the, the, the purest metals in the ancient world. So brass was uh, what Thyatira was kind of known for, and it was recognized for its strength and its purity. So when Jesus introduces himself as the Son of God with feet like burnished bronze, uh, it would have been seen as kind of this emphasis on his, his steadfastness, his strength, his immovability. But I think perhaps even more pertinent than that uh, is what Jesus is saying is, I see and I know your situation, even down to the most minute de detail. Uh, because remember, they're in this city where everyone sees the city and they consider them irrelevant, unimportant, overlooked. It was a city that many people would have looked at its size and wondered why Jesus even wrote a letter there to begin with. But Jesus says to them, hey, I, I see your challenges. I see the idolatry in the city, and I see the challenges that you face in this city on a, a daily basis. Uh, and I think that we can take this kind of to a personal level. If you're ever feeling that, that irrelevant or, or unimportant or overlooked, Jesus sees every detail. And, and where others might say, or, or you might think at times that, that it's not worth God's time, Jesus takes time and God takes time to address every need, every detail that's taking place. Now, just like Ephesus and Pergamum, Jesus sees what the church is doing well and he commends them and he sees where the church is lacking and he addresses it. He doesn't say, you're lucky you're such a small church. If you were a mega church, we would have to address these issues, but since you're a small church, we'll let it slide. No, he says, even if you're in an un unimportant city, even if you're a small church, there's some stuff that we need to address. So first he starts with the commendations in uh, verse 19. He says, I know your deeds, your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now remember, uh, this is the church that, that's considered the most, harsh, most harshly rebuked, but first it seems like they're kind of the, the most commended because he says, I see your deeds and your love, and your faith, and your service, and your perseverance. Like, this is sounding really good. And he says, you're actually, over time, increasing in these things. Like, you're doing really well in all of these areas. But verse 20 starts with, nevertheless. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. Buckle up a little bit, church. He says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds." Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, those uh, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. 
To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Those were two of the guilds that they had uh, in Thyatira was iron and pottery. Uh, and he says, just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Finally, in verse 29, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, uh, Jesus says at the center of the controversy in Thyatira is this person, Jezebel. It is extremely unlikely that this person was actually named Jezebel. Uh, if you call someone a Judas, uh, you're talking about the implications of the name, not calling them that specifically. Uh, it's most likely that's the same place here. You wouldn't name a child Jezebel uh, in this culture. Uh, that, that, would, that would not be good. Um, and, and if you did, you certainly wouldn't give someone named Jezebel a position of influence uh, within the church. So when it talks about Jezebel here, it's talking about the nature of Jezebel. Jezebel, the, the actions of Jezebel from the Old Testament. And in fact, we don't even know for certain that this is a woman within the church because it's just referring to this Jezebel, this Jezebel spirit of sorts. But Jezebel was a woman in the Old Testament church uh, or in the Old Testament found in 1 Kings. And she is remembered as being one of the most evil characters in all of Scripture. Uh, Jezebel was responsible for trying to combine the worship of God in Israel with the worship of the pagan god Baal. Uh, and when, when the prophets spoke against this, she had them killed. She killed off as many Christian or, or, or prophets of God as she could because she was so influential and, and infamous. She was powerful. Uh, and and you, you remember this story in 1 Kings chapter 18 with Elijah, uh, where Elijah comes to God and he says, I'm the only prophet left. Why? That's because Jezebel killed all the others. But he says, I'm the only prophet left, and uh, here in front of him is Baal. That's the God that Jezebel wants everyone to combine worship with. And there are 450 prophets of Baal. So Elijah says, well, let's do this. Let's have a little contest. Let's call down fire to consume the sacrifice. Uh, so all day long, all of these hundreds of prophets uh, of this pagan god are just calling down fire to consume uh, the, the, the sacrifice and nothing happens. And I love Elijah's response because it, it, he just taunts them. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18, it says this. This is in the midst of all uh, of their, their hoopla. He says, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely Baal is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice, but there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now, you know what happens after this? Uh, Elijah steps up, and three times he, he pours water onto the sacrifice until it is drenched and, and soaked, and then Elijah prays down the fire of God, and the fire comes down from heaven, and it, it consumes the sacrifice. It consumes all the wood around it. It even consumes the stones around the sacrifice. Uh, what happens after that is all of the prophets of Baal are so in awe that they fall face down. And when they do this, Elijah has them all killed. All of them are killed. Now what happens after that is, is the next ch chapter begins by saying that 
uh, Jezebel was told about what happened. All of her prophets had been killed by this Elijah. So she sends word to him and says, Elijah, you're a dead man. Now, it's amazing because Elijah is this mighty prophet of God. God has done all of these miracles. I mean, you just, you just heard what happened a chapter earlier where he sends down fire from heaven. But when Jezebel sends word saying, you're a dead man, Elijah runs and hides for his life because of the, the, the name and the influence of Jezebel, he is fearful for his life, even after God has done all of the, these amazing things. She was that powerful. She was that influential. And she was, she was married to a king named Ahab. And the Bible says there was never a man like Ahab, never anyone like Ahab, which sounds great, but it's not at all. First uh, Kings 21, 25 says this, there was never anyone like Ahab, who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. So this is Jezebel's reputation. She encouraged idolatry. And this idolatry in Thyatira started with a little bit of compromise here and a little bit of compromise there. Uh, there are these, these early writings. It's a, a Christian writer named Tertullian. Uh, he lived within 100 years of all of this taking place. Uh, and... He wrote about events like this, uh, and, and he talks about, uh, you know, what happens if a painter is offered work inside a, a pagan temple? What happens if a sculptor who might be offered work making a statue of a pagan god? Now, th this is uh, from historical writings. This is talking about a conversation that Tertullian had about this. Uh, I think I have it on the screen. He says, they would justify all of this by saying, this is my living and I must live. So Tertullian replied, must you live? <laughs> must you really live? I mean, if it means that you're compromising your faith. So uh, it, it was pretty, pretty intense stuff here. But uh, there are, are three camps, back to this church in Thyatira, there, there are three camps within the church that Jesus speaks to. There's one camp that is remaining faithful to him. And he, he simply says, hold on until I come. No correction necessary. If you're remaining faithful to me, you just hold on until I come. Uh, there's others who are engaging in sin and idolatry. And he says, hey, repent, or I'm going to have to bring you to a place where you repent. And if that requires suffering until you repent, so be it. But I will bring you to a place where you repent. And then there's a third camp. This uh, third camp is not necessarily practicing idolatry, but they're tolerating it. And I just want to point something out because this church in Thyatira was recognized for their love. Do you remember that? God said, I, I see your love and your growing love. That, that's something, if you remember, Ephesus was lacking. They are recognized for their love and they are rebuked for their tolerance. Now, now wait a minute, because does that mean that Love is different than tolerance? Does that mean that love is not the same thing as unconditional tolerance and affirmation? Because in the world that we live in, tolerance is king. And if somebody wants to identify themselves as a gender-neutral hamster, and you don't affirm that and celebrate that, then you are unloving and you are unkind and judgmental, and how can you call yourself a Christian? But what we have in Scripture is love is not the same thing as unconditional affirmation. 
This, this is what appears in the church today. It's the, the attack against the church is the, the intolerance. Tolerance is love. Love is tolerance. Affirm everything. And so many churches are, are drifting into this dangerous territory that says tolerate anything. Affirm everything. You know, John wrote that the law came through Moses, but what came through Jesus Christ? Grace and truth came through Jesus. Now, I would submit to you that if Jesus only brought grace, the world would be all about him. There'd be woke people all over the place saying, go, Jesus. That's not in my notes. I just thought it was good. I submit to you, uh, uh, Jesus was not just about living under his grace. He was also about living in truth. And truth is not relative in a way, it is relative. It's relative to the word of God. And the word of God calls sin a sin. Now, I, I want you to see that the sin God condemns the most throughout all of Scripture is the same sin that's the most prevalent sin in the church at Thyatira. And it's the same sin that is the most prevalent sin in our culture today, and that is sexual immorality. When the people would engage in sexual immorality, God saw it not just as physical adultery, but as spiritual adultery against him. And this touches everywhere from uh, sexual promiscuity to sex outside of marriage to same-sex relationships to sexual immorality in the mind and in the heart, and that includes lust and pornography, church. Sin is sin. And to his church in Thyatira, Jesus is saying, I see your love. The problem is you tolerate sin. And you tolerate this person who spreads sin. But sin cannot be tolerated. It must be confronted. And this is true of the organized church, but I want it to sink in personally. Because Paul said that there are, are two sins against the Holy Spirit that we have to, to, to stand on guard against. First, he says, don't quench the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, what does don't quench the Spirit means? It means when the Spirit of God is leading you to do something and you put your foot down and you say no, that is quenching the Spirit of God. But he also says in Ephesians, don't grieve the Spirit. And that's just flipping it around a little bit. That's when the Spirit of God says, don't do something. And you say, I'm going to do it anyway. Don't grieve the Spirit of God. Jesus says to this church, hey, your love is awesome. And I see your deeds and your service and your faithfulness and your perseverance. But you tolerate sin in your church. And you tolerate this person, this Jezebel who spreads it. But what I want you to see is, is the core issue with Jezebel, I actually would say, is not the sin that she's, she's engaging in. And I'll show you what I mean in Revelation 2.21. This is what kind of spurs God to action here. He says, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling it's not her sin that's condemned her. It's her unwillingness to repent. Jezebel's issue is God gave her time to repent, and she consistently said no. You say, where is the grace in all of this? The grace is in the time that God gave her to repent. 
Now, I, I want to clarify here. I'm not talking about an, an, an occasional slip or struggle with sin. I'm talking about uh, um, when you give yourself over to it and you just say, this is who I am, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, grace covers sin. Grace does not condone sin. And that's kind of the issue at, at hand here. Jesus is speaking not to people who sin occasionally, but who have given themselves over to it and say, this is, this is just who I am now. Uh, could you come, Renee? I want to end on a, on a strong note. I told you it was kind of heavy this morning. Uh, in Revelation 2.28, he's talking about the ones, though, who overcome all of this, who overcome this temptation to engage in, in the sexual immorality and to engage in, in eating food sacrificed to idols. And he says in 2.28, uh, I will also give that one the morning star. What is this talking about? What is this morning star that, he, that he's promising the overcomers? And I think we find the answer to that. There's only one more reference to a morning star in all of Revelation. It's in chapter 22, verse 16. And Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. And he says this, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. What Jesus promises to the one who overcomes is himself. And, and, and how do we remain faithful and steadfast? How do we press forward in a culture that is saturated where sin, and like I've said a few times, where if you don't engage in it or condone it, you are the weird one, according to our culture. You are the, the evil one. There's the, uh, the, the illustration of when you get in your car and, and you have the the windshield in front of you and you have a rear view mirror that should be about that size. And the reason for that is because you should be focused on what's in front of you and aware of what's behind you. You should be focused on what's ahead of you but aware of what's behind you. Now what would happen if you flipped that around and you had a giant mirror and just a tiny little window to see what's ahead? you wouldn't be able to see what's ahead of you because you would be so focused on what's behind you. When we're talking about pressing on in faithfulness and holiness, the idea is you should be looking ahead to what's, what's in front of you. The morning star, Jesus Christ himself. Be aware of your past, how God has saved you out of your sin. But don't get caught up in a, a shame and guilt fest that holds you there forever. You have been set free. I want to repeat that. You have been set free. But we have not been set free to continue in our sin. We've been set free to walk in freedom out of our sin. Amen? Do I have to hand out bingo cards to get an amen in here? Can you stand with me? Father, my prayer this morning is that your Holy Spirit would move in this place and that you would reveal to our hearts, Lord, is there anywhere where we have given ourselves over to sin, where we have allowed it in our lives and said, that's just how it is in my life. 
I pray this morning that, that we would give that to you, that this would be a morning of repentance, which just means that we change our heart and our mind and we say, I want you more. This morning as a church family, whatever it is, we say, we want you more. Church, take some time to engage in prayer and worship this morning. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.